Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing. Luke chapter 11. Now it came to pass as he was praying in a certain place when he ceased that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John the Baptist taught his disciples. We get to do the Lord's Prayer today, demon possession stuff. Like we're going to, a lot of topics in Luke chapter 11. We will not finish the whole chapter. But I want to bring up one thing. And I think, so last week we talked about there, there were 12 disciples and then he is now in context, he's training in 70 more people to go out and bring the message or the good news to all of the cities of Israel. And, you know, I kind of said, like, there's a question, why 70? That's such an odd number to pop up. Divine perfection, it could be the number of the Sanhedrin, could be the number of people that Moses brought on board to help him judge and administer the nation. And then this morning, while we're doing Bible study, my, what, what Steph and I are doing Exodus chapter 15. If you could turn to Exodus chapter 15, I feel like this is worth going back for. Um, they have been, they've been taken out of war by the God of war who has taken them away from Pharaoh and delivered them from Pharaoh. They have gone through some trials. There's this bitter water that they drink in chapter 15. And they're, the bitter water which purges them of everything they would have eaten in, in Egypt. So there's like this cleansing effect that happens. And then the very last verse of chapter 15. Odd little verse. Why would you throw that in there? But if Exodus is a reflection of the ministry of Jesus Christ, his salvation, him fighting our battles for us, him getting us through the, the great sea, then you get this little verse at the end of Exodus where there are 12 wells, and 70 palm trees. And this is a one verse season of rest for the people of Israel. They haven't started wandering in the wilderness. They've just come to this place of rest after God's fought their battles and after they've kind of purged or, or dealt with the bitter water of sin. Now they get this fresh water and this shade that's brought. There's this counsel there. And then you look at that and I just thought it, it was worth going back one, you know, to the last chapter and just point that out. It could be that why Jesus picked the number 70 is because the 12 disciples and the 70 other disciples that got brought on board are a reflection or a mirroring and a fulfillment of the typology of Exodus. And so you've got these connections. Again, they're just all over in the Bible, and I'm going to miss a few, which is good because then when we finish the Bible, you go back and study it again, and you keep finding these things. And it's one more thing for me where I just look at the Word of God and have a reverence for it. Like, this is incredible what God has done and how he's woven all this together and how in the life of Jesus, all of these things are getting fulfilled. I think it's why we got four gospels. It's because you got these guys going, well, you know, Mark didn't really get all the good stuff. You know, even John waited a few years before he wrote his gospel, but he's like, man, there was so much that the three other gospels didn't capture. And that's Jesus. There's so much to what he's done. So Jesus is showing the disciples how to live. He's being deliberate, I think, with the numbers of the people that he's bringing because there's fulfillment going on there. Um, and they're, they're finding out and they're celebrating that this following Jesus thing actually works. 
and they're seeing that they're healing people. They're casting out demons. They're doing things in the name of Jesus, not in their own strength. And Jesus rejoices with them. And then immediately he starts praying. He turns his joy into pray, uh, praise. And, and the prayer is the center and the foundation of the life of Jesus. He says, don't get so excited about casting out demons. Get excited that your name's written in the book of life. Praise the Lord for what he's done for you, for his mercy and for his grace. Just like the song we got done singing. So they watch him. They watch him pray. And I think what happened in this moment is that they saw something different about Jesus' prayers. Jewish prayers were wrote a lot like Catholic prayers. You just say them again and again and again, like there's some magic in the words. And Jesus just prayed from his heart. And, and, and we pray, I think we take for granted the freedom that we have in prayer to say what is on our heart and what's in our soul. And he, and they look at him just praying and he's not doing any rote memorized things. He's not praying from a, a, a rabbinical text. He's just praying with authority and with relationship. And we covered the Lord's prayer in Matthew chapter six. We did it in depth. Um, Luke puts the Lord's prayer much later in the ministry of Jesus. So he's been teaching them all along this principle of prayer. And people find slight differences between Matthew and Luke. And they're like, see, there's mistakes. But both Matthew and Luke claim to have had this prayer teaching at different points in the ministry. It's very possible Jesus told them at two different times. And the fact that they don't perfectly match, I think, reinforces the point that there aren't rote prayers that Jesus taught. He taught them the principle of praying. Here's the general categories of things we pray for. But he didn't give them a set prayer that they have to say word for word. Um, and, and in that sense, neither Luke or Matthew worried too much if these two things matched perfectly. They use different words. I'll point out one of them today. Um, we should know some powerful things about this, though. Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. John taught them to pray one way, but Jesus prays with a whole different level of authority. And they want to know, okay, how do we pray if we're followers of Jesus? What does this look like? And, and we should take away from this two things. One, that we should pray, like Jesus modeled it, now he's going to teach it. And that prayer is learned. Isn't that interesting? They learned how to pray with John, but then how do we pray with Jesus? And I think sometimes we think people say a prayer of salvation and suddenly we expect them to know how to pray like everybody else. And I think this group, we're pretty graceful with this. People say, I'm not ready to pray yet. I just want to hear. There's a learning process here. So when we pray on, on Sunday nights and we pray together as a fellowship and somebody says, yeah, I, I'm not, I don't want to pray, that's fine. Let them learn. And the disciples right here, they're not going in saying, Jesus, let me practice with you. They're saying, Jesus, teach us to pray. And that prayer is not intuitive of the flesh. It is a learned discipline of the faith. And we pray in the spirit. We don't pray because we've memorized a text that somebody else wrote. And that's to say, if you want to read the Psalms and use them as a prayer tool, good for you. But the heart of prayer is the heart that God's building in you. And the more mature you get in your faith, the more comfortable you get with prayer. And it has to be taught. And I think we should take that away from verse 1. They've been following him for two years, maybe more at this point, and they still want to be taught more and more from Jesus how to do it. I feel that way whenever I pray with one of those kind of silver-haired prayer warriors in the church, and you hear them praying, you're like, dang, I wish I could pray like that. So pray for that. That's a godly thing to ask for. Lord, help me to pray like that. That person prays and there's power in it. I can feel it. I know what's going on. And, and man, I just, they're so easy for them, but they've been learning it for 20, 30 years. So we do the same. And as believers, we grow in our prayer life. We grow in how we pray. And then we get the Lord's Prayer. This is what Jesus taught. So he said to them, verse 2, When you pray, 
say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us day by day our daily bread and forgive our sins for all, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us and don't do not lead us into temptation but deliver us from the evil one here are the slight differences from the commonly memorized Matthew version first of all Luke uses a different word for debtor in there in sin i, I just want to point out a couple of these things in the greek hamartia is to miss the mark or to sin when it, in verse 4 forgive us our hamartia forgive us when we miss the mark Forgive us when we fall short. Remember in the last chapter, they couldn't cast that demon out and Jesus stepped in and did it. And they feel like, I mean, there's a sense as disciples that they weren't really able to do what Jesus asked them to do to the extent that Jesus could do it. And there's this prayer here that Jesus teaches them. Ask for, ask for forgiveness when you sin or when you miss the mark or the, the, the high goal of fulfilling all of the laws that God set with the Old Testament. And, and Romans says we all fall short, we all miss the mark, we all sin, we are not worthy of the glory of God. So we pray about that. Matthew uses the word ophili, ophilima, if I'm saying that right, that which is owed. Matthew has a different perspective on this. With Luke, it's sin, missing the mark, not fulfilling God's expectations for your life. With Matthew, it's something that's owed. When you sin, there's a debt to be paid. And with Matthew, there's this idea of, I want to I pay, Lord, pay that debt for me. And you're asking for that. And they're very similar concepts, but fairly different when you flesh them out. So there are possibly two different occasions, likely many occasions, when Jesus taught them these basic principles of prayer. The fact that they're not the same then, again, points to the fact that it's not a mantra. Sometimes we pray about our sin. Sometimes we pray about the debts that we owe because of that sin. But it's, in general, we're dealing with the fact that we're not perfect. There's a humility in both of those. And there's a framework around it. Jesus never teaches disciples how to speak just to re repeat the words that are there. Repeat the words that he has spoken. John 14, 23. We don't have to go out and come up with the right words to say to people. We can literally repeat the things Jesus gives us. And that's a great place to start. We can also build on some of those. So he does teach them to pray. And I, I would say, like, this is a thought. What's more essential for the 70 and the 12? Is it more essential to be preaching or to be praying? Because he never teaches them to preach. But he does teach them, and we know at least on two occasions, how to pray. And when you think of the body that he's trying to build, this kingdom that he's trying to build, Jesus wants 100% prayer warriors in the church. He doesn't need everybody to be a public speaker in the church. And so when we see these lessons to disciples, take note of the fact that even though Peter is one that stands up in the book of Acts and teaches, Jesus never actually taught him to do that. The Holy Spirit leads him to do that. When Stephen stands before his accusers, the Holy Spirit comes upon him and tells him what to say. But when it comes to prayer, Jesus takes the time to go aside with his disciples and he prays himself, first one, but then they, he also teaches how to do that. That is more essential than anything else when it comes to sharing the gospel with other people. Positioning. Our Father in heaven. All blessings start with truth. All prayer starts with a recognition of where we are and where God is. Praying this, this idea of I think when you say, when you recognize who God is, you're essentially, you can, you could expand that to praying the entire book of Genesis, right? You want to know who God is and what he does, Genesis, Exodus, you could literally pray every verse in those two books. But as a general category, 
positioning ourselves when we start our prayers. I'm going to give you a few different breakdowns of this prayer. The second one's praise. So if we, if we position ourselves rightly with humility, but also Jesus uses the phrase our father with a familial intimacy with our God. We're not distant and he's not often some sacred play. What's the Whitney Houston song? Our, our God, or something. I don't remember it. I shouldn't reference it if it's not in my notes. Um, but uh, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. There, there, is, there is definitely a tone here of positioning that Jesus teaches them to pray. He also uses the word our. This is a community prayer. This is not my Father who art in heaven. He says our Father who art in heaven. So he's teaching them to pray as a community, as a group of people, as a church. Second one being praise, hallowed be your name. Again, this is a category. We can hallow God's name in thousands of different ways. And if you honestly, if you think about this, to set God apart and to show God is set apart and the dwelling of God, essentially the hallowing of his name, like you can pray all 120 some Psalms and just go through them and pray those Psalms like you're hallowing his name. You're, you can pray the entire book of Numbers and Judges showing how distinct God is and how powerful he is, how set apart that he is. His name, his power, his existence, lots of things you can pray in that category. Then you get the next one. So you've got positioning, praise. The next one would be desire. Your kingdom come. So after we've recognized our position with God and we've praised God in prayer, a third area of prayer is to show our desire matches his desire. What's God's will? Well, you can read God's will as you read through all the prophets. You, you can read through Revelation. You know where the history of the world is headed. So when we pray God's will, his kingdom come, we need to know what his kingdom is and we need to know what the plan is for it coming. And then you start to pray those things. I find your kingdom come is a great prayer when you're feeling depressed at the news. Man, your kingdom come, Lord. We've had enough. Come soon. Come quickly, Lord. There's a hope that comes in that kind of prayer. So the positioning has humility. The praise, I think, has a joy to it. Desire has a hope that goes with it. Your kingdom come. Then look at this one. Your will be done. Knowing that the kingdom's growing, 12, 70, there's a healing that's going on, there's a maturity going on, there's a boldness that's going on, but none of it is us, it's all him. Your will be done. And this is, a, like, there's a separation here. There's a law that has to happen. Our flesh wants our will to be done. Talk to any two-year-old, right? That's all that our flesh wants is my will. And as parents and as our Father in Heaven teaches us, it's to start separating our will from His will, killing our will, and having His will grow within us. Your will be done. Four words in the English, but man, that's a whole category. You want to know what God's will is? You can pray the entire book of Deuteronomy. There's no limit to the words these can be. Again, all of the prophets tell us what God's will is. We know God's name. We know his kingdom. We know his will. We can pray through the gospels as Jesus teaches what his will is for humanity. His will is peace, prosperity, joy, patience, hope. Then you get action. So you got positioning, you got praising, hallowed be your name, desire your kingdom come, your will be done as a form of action. And then after that, you get on earth as it is in heaven, alignment. You, get, you, you pray in such a way that we align ourselves with what God wants to have happen. The entire tabernacle temple system was an image of what's actually in heaven at the throne of God. And there's an alignment that God has shown us that we can pray for. 
So you can, as, as we are on earth as humans, fallen in sin, we have the spirit of this age, we have the enemy that's trying to disrupt this, to turn our day into a day that looks like a heavenly day, that's the church, and that's what we're doing, and our part in it. And again, alignment, doing things the way God wants them done in worship, again, you can pray the entire book of Leviticus. You can pray the histories as he's showing a nation how to live. And you get provision. And I think this one's interesting. Give us day by day our daily bread. It's okay to ask God for our basic needs. If you're not making the bills month to month, it's okay to ask for help with that. You're not being greedy to ask for a daily bread to be given to you. In a physical sense, some commentators say, well, no, 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 this is all about spiritual bread. But I, you know, when you hear the day by day, our daily bread, I, I think it's also about the physical meeting our needs. And we have people that come to church and they're not making ends meet. And as, a, and as a body, we as a community can help those people out. And so it's easy to expand on this is that we have lots of needs and trials and day-to-day issues. It's both physical, emotional, but also spiritual. Lord, give me the bread that I need for today. Give me the word of God. So if I'm praying that God gives me my daily bread in a spiritual sense, it makes sense that I do Bible study with my prayer, doesn't it? Because God's like, well, it's right there. Just pick it up and read it. You know, but to align our will with God's will, this isn't about changing God, it's about changing us. You want to pray for the daily bread to be provided? Go through the book of Acts and look, look at how God provides for the early church. Like, honestly, you see this modest ask for needs. I'll point that out too. This isn't give me my Lamborghini and my mansion and the West Palm Beach. No, it's, it's, there's a modest request going on. When you go to your Father in heaven, we pray for things we need. And we become content with what God provides. So bare minimum, you can always say like, do I have a stomach that's full? Do I have a place to sleep where I'm not getting rained on? Like, has God provided my basic needs for me? And so that idea of poverty in the church is something that has been embraced throughout the years, throughout 2,000 years. But there is a esposios going on here, daily modest needs. There is a a super substantial would be the Greek translation of the word daily there. So give us our day by day, our super substantial bread, right? And so that's the translation where people are like, well, this must be like spiritual, but give us the bread that we need that gives us the substance that we need to get through our days. And I think that's a worthy prayer. What we really need is what we're asking for. Matthew 4, 4 has the same idea. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Dad, Lord, help me to be, when I do my devotions and I'm reading the Bible, help me to be read, reading exactly what I need to get through today. What a great go way to, thing to pray for. And you're still praying for God's will. Then it gets to salvation. Forgive us our sins. Right? This, is a one t- this is not a one-time prayer according to Jesus. Jesus tells them to pray this way in general. He's telling them to pray this way as a community. He's teaching them to pray this way because in our flesh we don't ask for forgiveness all the time. And this gets confusing for kids and literal kids like me. I used to think like every time I sinned I had to pray for forgiveness for it. And I think the Lord's smarter than that. Like, I think if you're praying every day and this is the nature of your prayer, then this is a category of prayer. Lord, forgive me of my sins. That starts our walk with Jesus. But to think that we stop sinning instantly or there isn't a renewal process that happens is foolish. So 
We try to go through life eliminating sin from our walk, yet we still pray for this. And, and again, I'll remind you, like, the older I get, the less I'm sinning according to the law, but the more I recognize my sinfulness according to my flesh. And, I, and you start to think, man, I want to just pray through the book of Hebrews. I want to pray through the book of Romans. And to just go through that scripture and just pray it back to the Lord, this forgive me of my sins is an entire category of sacrifice, atonement, and payment for sin that has to be made. Then forgiveness, for we also forgive everyone who's indebted to us. Like, again, our flesh doesn't want to do this, but Jesus is teaching them to pray for this thing that our flesh doesn't want to do. Somebody wrongs us, it almost feels good to harbor a bitterness towards them because they deserve it. Yet most of the time, they're not even aware that you're sitting there bitter. The only thing the bitterness hurts is you. So, but this can be a long list too. Like if, if we spend time praying for our enemies and lifting up debtors and aligning our hearts to God, like for those of you that have been wronged a lot, this is an entire category that could last hours. So you wonder like, oh, I, can, I can pray this prayer succinctly and quickly. And the Lord teaches us this simple, basic prayer. But if you look at it as categories of prayer, this is why Jesus can pray all night in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's got a long list of people that are about to wrong him at the cross. And he can spend hours praying for this. Harboring sin is to retain it. It's crippling to our spiritual walk. But to release it and forgive those that have sinned against us unlocks our walk in love and in righteousness. We're not harboring things towards people. What's amazing to me is people will presume that we harbor things against them when we're not. And then you have to ask, like, where is that coming from? What spirit is adding that into their heart? Like, where did that come from? And then last but not least, Jesus introduces this idea of spiritual battle, which is, I think, where the rest of the chapter is headed. Don't lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Two kinds of spiritual battle. You have your own temptations and the temptations of the world, and then you've also got the evil one, a spiritual ad adversity that is coming after you. Some of you be like, I don't feel like I've ever been attacked by the evil one. Then you're probably not living a life that's a threat to the evil one. Think about that. If he's got you caught up in all kinds of sin in your life, you're not a threat to him. You're just, you're, you're a mockery of a walk of Christ. You got to fix the sin so you're actually a threat. And I guarantee you the enemy will come attack you. Probably be right when you wanted to get a break because he knows when to attack too. But this prayer aligns us with God's will again. Depending on your temptations, this is a whole category. Like some people are tempted by more things than others, but we all have temptations. Amen. So we walk through life and there's things that get us and you know yourself better than anybody else does. But God knows you even more intimately than you know yourself. So you just turn to God and say, Lord, help me. Don't lead me into temptations, things I can't handle. And we know that God does leave, lead his followers into trials and into tests. It's to toughen us up. So God allows sinners to experience the consequences of their sin, the inclinations of that season, so that they can learn and they can grow. The enemy doesn't need you to stop praying. He just needs to take away any number of these elements to cripple your prayer life. Think about that. If you pray and you just pray empty prayers, does God care about that? Is there, does, does the enemy feel a threat because of that? If you pray and you never deal with your sin... If you pray and you don't have proper humility with God when you come before an almighty heavenly God, 
if you pray and you don't share the will of God and you don't praise God in your prayer, or you pray but you don't pray for any action to take place in your life, position, praise, desire, action, alignment, provision, if any of those pieces is missing, it really takes away a lot from your prayer life. So oftentimes, believers, early in our walk, we just pray for what we need. And to think about what Jesus is teaching them, he's saying, okay, in addition to praying for what you need, which is still here, also pray the hollowness of God. Pray for his name to be praised. Pray for the, his kingdom to come and his will to be done. Pray for it, his, everything to be on earth like it is in heaven. In other words, there's an earthly mission that we have here. Pray for all of these things at once. All of these elements and categories start to build up to something that when a church prays these things with a large critical mass of people, there is a force of prayer that's going forward. There's a spiritual battle that's being fought and won. Why? The next two chapters. Like, we're going to get examples of all of this. So these examples are about spiritual warfare. It ends on spiritual warfare. And these elements provide more than enough equipment for the disciples to conquer all these battles. Um, but we also see, like, um, we don't impress God with being overly fancy either. Like, again, just building these out into three-hour prayers by repeating ourselves, it's not the same as actually dedicating and disciplining ourselves to these things. So how do you learn to pray? Pray with people that love to pray. And gather with them. And don't feel obligated to fancy yourself up. Just pray what's in your heart. And over the years, you'll find that your prayer life gets richer and fuller. How do you pray? Study God's word and use those books of the Bible that fill these different elements. As you study those books, pray for them, pray for them to happen and come true. When you read through the Psalms, pray the Psalms. And use the words God's given us in order to pray. But that's a learned talent, takes time, it's a discipline, and it's utterly the foundation of how the church does battle on earth, and it's what Jesus taught his disciples. He didn't teach his disciples to go out and cast out more demons. He didn't teach his disciples to do the things or the works of the faith. He taught them to pray more. And this is the core. God is in heaven, you are on earth, let your words be few. Don't have to dress this up at all. Just pray what's there. And for... I think when you first find this, getting past this rote prayer kind of thing, or just praying for all the needs of everybody in your life and you, and you start to just pray what you actually say, God, what's in my spirit right now? What do I need to say? And you just say, how would be your name? Three, three, four words, nothing, just so small, so succinct. But when that's coming from the heart, it's different than just saying it. Because you're like, Lord, thank you for giving, putting that on my heart. I want your name to be hallowed. I'm not just saying the words. I'm saying the words because you taught me to say these and I'm hallowing you. Lord, I want your name to be sacred in my life. I want it to be precious. Change my heart so I don't pine after this thing the world has. So I pine after this thing that you've given me, which is to celebrate and praise an almighty God. Go for a walk in the woods and hallow his name while you do it. And recognize what he's made, what he's done. Prayer becomes then a central discipline to a fruitful ministry. Hand in hand. The primary needs are spiritual, and we often say we don't have the time for prayer. We don't know how to pray. I don't know how to pray powerfully enough. I can't pray King James like my grandpa could. Right? You have to get over those. God never asks you to do that. His first lesson in prayer is super simple. Just a few lines. How, how long does it take to say a prayer like this one? seconds doesn't even take 60 of them but but god asks us to pray not to pray fancy but to pray 
And God says to cast all of our cares on him, align with his will, and consecrate the time to do that. Believers that don't pray, just a convicting note, you're impotent believers. You won't have fruit in your life. You might be intellectual believers, but you're not spiritual believers. You're not enacting the very first seed of a spiritual life, which is to pray in the spirit. And to just spend your time meditating on the Lord and saying to the Lord what he's putting on your heart while you meditate and while you study his scriptures. If you want that seed to grow into a powerful ministry in your life, do it. And do it faithfully. And it's awkward when you first start. Marriage counseling, one of the advices we give to couples is pray together. Because then you got iron sharpening iron. You got people like, hey, do you want to pray today? No, I don't feel like it. Yeah, but we're committed to this. And you got two people that can walk through life and learn to pray together. And I tell you, like, Steph and I were married for 15, 20 years. And we would pray together once in a while, but not committed faithfully day by day. And I tell you, the day by day thing feels awkward when you first pray with other people. It doesn't feel like your flesh wants it. But boy, you do it for 30 days or so. And, and it's like, I can't start my day without it. It becomes an integral part of your life. So Luke follows up this story about persistence in prayer, and he uses these elements persistently. So we see stories for the rest of the chapter that really back up what Jesus just taught. And he said to them, which of you shall have a friend to go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. First of all, like, if any of you do this, I'm going to react the same way this person. I'll be like, it's two in the morning. Go to the like, go to the grocery store. Why are you coming to my house? Right? But if you're my friend and you keep knocking on the door, no, 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 you're my last resort. I need something. I got to host people back at my house. This is a really interesting parable. He will answer him from within and say, don't trouble me. The door's shut and my children are with me in bed. I can't rise to give to you. You're going to inconvenience me if I have to get up and do something for you. How presumptuous. I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. In other words, Tom, if you come knocking on my door at two in the morning, I will say, leave me be, I'm sleeping. And we're friends. I love you. You're my brother. But if you keep knocking, it's the persistence that'll get me out of bed. And what an interesting thing to share, right, as he's teaching them how to pray. So think about this. Does this mean like God's a grumpy God that doesn't want to hear us the first time we pray? Like, how is he using this? So even humans will respond to a persistent need. I think that's the point here. If we pray persistently, not methodically, but persistently, if we do that for our friends, even when we don't feel like it, how much more will our Father in Heaven do it when he does feel like it? He wants to reveal himself to us. Like the entire Old and New Testament show us a God that wants to reveal his power in our lives. So how much more does a God who wants to get out of bed and answer prayer, will he do it when even we as humans won't even do it for our own friends, but we will after a persistent season of knocking on the door? Sure, I'll get up and give you something. Just stop knocking on my door. So we should think that way, even though God isn't that grumpy person that wants to stay sleeping at night, we should still be as persistent in our prayer because persistent is what gets answers. And saying the door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. The houses back then typically had a main floor with the kitchen and whatnot, but it also had the fire. 
and then you would sleep in like a little loft area up over that. So the whole family would kind of sleep together in that loft. Largely in the wintertime, you'd bring the animals inside on the main level. So for somebody to get out of bed and give somebody a loaf of bread, they had to get out of the loft, waking up their whole family, and then go down into the bottom, which would likely wake up all the animals. Like this was not a simple thing to do. The persistence, however, is what gets him to do it. Just because the knocking on the door is going to wake him up anyways. We should have that same persistence in prayer. And I think he teaches them the Lord's Prayer, but then he's giving them these principles to go with it. Pray persistently. It's an argument for praying all the time. Pray in the morning. Pray when you go to bed. Pray without ceasing as you go through the day and create that discipline. So we discipline ourselves in a lot of areas of life. And I just want to point this out because I want to encourage you to increase your prayer life and to build it. Think about this. If you have to get a new job, do you, do you persist in learning how to do the job? Do you study it? Do you go to school for it even? Do you have a hobby that you're taking up? You watch some YouTube clips, but you persist in studying it, learning it, doing it? So, you know, people can say, well, I don't know how to mow a lawn. And it's like, well, you, that's right. You need to learn to mow the lawn. Just like the disciples needed to learn to mow the, mow the lawn in their spiritual lives. They have to figure it out. So to persist in doing this sort of thing is a focus on prayer that requires time. And we do it all the time for the world. When our boss says to learn something new, we, ju- we jump right in learning that new thing. If you want to keep your job, that is. Maybe you don't. Right? But we, per- we learn things and persist in things often. We persist more often for the world than we do for our God. So when Jesus says, pray and to pray without ceasing, and to learn to pray, and gives this parable along with it, we should be the person on the door saying, I'm going to figure this out until I figure out a way to get that door unlocked. Because I want bread, which is also part of the parable. Like there's this request that I want the word, and I want it in my life, which is God's will for your life, so you're praying God's will. Then he gives this example, which we're more familiar with. So I say to you, ask, and it'll be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it'll be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be open. Ask, seek, knock. When we do the Lord's Prayer, we're asking for something. We want the Lord's will to be done. We want our daily bread. We want those things. So we, we build these up. Asking is with a faith that there's someone there to hear it. Um, seeking is a hope that you have it there. And knocking, you knock on the door of someone who loves you. It all plays into this, faith, hope, and love, asking, seeking, knocking, ongoing, continuous behavior for all three. It is never said that this is something that is anything but foundational to the church and how the church should operate. You ask for spiritual growth, you ask for the bread, you ask for a discipline, you ask to be a core of the ministry, and when everybody is doing that in a church, my belief is that church is protecting itself in prayer. I'll add this other piece. When we pray for each other, as we're also told to do, we also create a hedge around each other. You're not just one person praying for one person. You're 20 people praying for one person. And we move that and we do that kind of thing. And as a pastor, like I make it my effort to pray for all of you as regularly as I can. But what happens when a church where everybody decides to take on that duty? Not everybody's called to teach, but everybody's called to pray. So you pray persistently, you pray without ceasing, and you pray in such a way that you need to get that bread because there's people that are coming over to your house that you want to host. And I think of that as evangelism. Like we want, we desperately want to see people meet Jesus and have their lives healed. They're so addicted to the sin that's destroying them. 
and you want to see them come out, you want to see them come over to your house and eat, break bread with you and eat with you and so you can minister to those people. And we need other people in the church to help us with that. So this parable of knocking on the door persistently and asking for the bread because you want to host people, like that heart of ministry is built into that too. Then verse 11, if a son asks for bread from any father among you, notice the bread image is persistent. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? So I think this is a counterbalance to the grumpy old man up in the loft, right? It's like, if you're asking your father in heaven for something, is he going to give you a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? This is a really evil father. Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now we're told what we're asking for. God, put in me a right spirit. Search my heart, Lord. Know my ways. Clear out any wicked way in me. What we're praying for isn't just to clear out the wicked. You can clear out the wicked, and then seven more wicked are going to come fill the space. We'll see that. That's the next narrative we're going to get. But we pray to clear out the wicked so that the Holy Spirit can fill us. Lord, get rid of sin and help my heart be for the things that are of the holy. Coming back around to the Heavenly Father, Jesus presents this invitation. How many people have tried persistent prayer along the elements above, God's will, daily bread, and how many of them have seen their lives changed by doing it? And the, the result of that is a church that's lasted 2,000 years. This is the key. Pray more. What do I need to do to ramp up my spiritual life? How much are you praying? Well, when I get to it, when I think of it, when I feel like it, well, what do you expect to see happen? But when you ask for things persistently with God, when you put in that devotional time, the promise of God himself incarnate is that you will, when you ask, seek, and knock, you will find. There will be an answer. There will be something that happens in your life that will be clear to you that God is actually walking with you through this life. What a beautiful thing. Sometimes we get so caught up in our own garbage that we forget to pray for other people. Sometimes we're going through a test or trial that God wants us to walk that journey. And we get so caught up in ourselves, we forget to pray for the others around us. God doesn't change when we pray. We change when we pray. Lord, I'm really caught up in my own stuff, but I'm going to pray these elements that you've given me. I'm going to walk through these position, praise, will. I'm going to, I'm going to commit myself to these things because, Lord, you told me to do it. And I'm going to put my own concerns on the shelf for 15 minutes while I pray, and I'm going to pray for everybody in my church by name if I know them all. That's a serious walk of faith. You're going to see things happen. It might be through other people's lives. It's why we gather as a body. It's why we talk to each other. We often quit because we don't see changes immediately, which is a misunderstanding of the hallowedness of God and the power of God, the first two elements. We often stop praying because we are lazy or we have everything we need, which is a misunderstanding of our day-by-day -day daily bread. It's a misunderstanding of the sin in our life that can emerge from that kind of thinking. If we don't see change immediately, it might be that God wants us to wait or experience something. Like a good father in heaven that gives good gifts, he wants us to grow in our faith. Trials might be part of that. In fact, we're promised that it will be. God also won't give us things that are bad for us. Sometimes we pray for things because we don't like them. 
but God's not going to give us things, even if we ask for it, that are actually bad for us. If we ask for a scorpion, he won't give us one of those either. But when we ask for the good things, the good gifts, we don't define what a good gift is. God defines that. So we know what's good for us by seeing what he gives us. And then finally, the giving of the Holy Spirit. Um, God puts his spirit in us. I still think this is one of the most amazing things. I'll often think something really nice and beautiful about somebody, and then I'll recognize, oh, that was God's spirit. That wasn't mine. My spirit just wants gummy bears from the grocery store, as many as I can get. But God's spirit in me gives me a love for other people in my life, a concern and compassion for people that I wouldn't have spent the time of day on before I started following the Lord. God in my life helps me to overcome sin because I prefer purity. And the sin gets to be so disgusting because God's spirit is in me, not because my spirit thinks it's disgusting. Does that make sense? Our distance isn't due to God's willingness. Our distance is often due to our persistence. That we're not persistent enough. We haven't consecrated the time. We haven't hallowed God's name. We haven't set him in the position he belongs in. We're not in a position because our will isn't aligned. And so what we want and what our desires are are out of whack with what good gifts actually look like. So the question of this, this, this son, the person knocking at the door, asking our father for good gifts understanding that he wants to give us good gifts, the gift of the Holy Spirit being preeminent among them, are all things that get us to ask, how serious are we about our walk with Christ? Are we serious? Are we, is this something that's more than just a passing hobby on Sundays? Or is this something that we take with us into the battlefield six days a week? And we walk through life with a commitment to prayer. And we give up our excuses and we exercise it as though we're running a race that we actually want to win. And there's a battle to be fought. And that battle, Jesus tells us, is fought in prayer before anything else. Before he goes to the cross, he's praying in the garden all night. Right? Jesus even models it right up to the end. Then we get to verse 14. And, and he, I think, is expanding how important this is. And as and Andy was casting out a demon, and it was mute. Mute demons were big deals in Jewish tradition. If you couldn't get them to talk to you, then they were more powerful. Like you didn't have their name. You couldn't take their name and cast them out by name. Jesus provides his name. It doesn't, it doesn't matter if the demon's mute or not. So it was when the demon had gone out that the mute spoke, and the multitudes marveled. Whoa, this is all showy. But some of them said he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. So we're going right into spiritual warfare, right? Here's how you pray, and then here's how demons get cast out. So he casts out a demon. This is God's will on earth. We should know that. This is God's kingdom come. He's taking territory. There's one more soul that's not being tortured by a demon. The multitudes are marveling. This isn't something that to rejoice in in chapter 10, but you still have people that are marveling over the, the end result of a good prayer life. And some of them marvel doesn't equal following Jesus. Like this is the same multitudes that are going to hang him on a cross. So there's a belief here, but the action becomes contrary. There's an intellectual impressed that the demon got kicked out, but the intellect also deceives them in that they think Beelzebub is the one doing it. So they don't even see the kingdom of God when it's right in front of their face. Beelzebub, by the way, is translated Lord of the Flies, or more inappropriately, the dung or the poop god. 
It is a play on words from the ancient Jews. Uh, it is Aramaic. It is the Aramaic word that they used for Satan. So Beelzebub and Satan are not two different creatures. It's two different languages. Um, either way, Beelzebub is the ruler of demons in the Aramaic, the lord of the poop, the garbage of this world. So he casts out demons, that's true, but it, the fact that he does it by Beelzebub is a lie. This is what, a mis this is what misunderstood doctrine will do to you. Part truth, part lie getting mi mixed together. And so they are seeing the work of Jesus on earth and they still don't understand what it is. This is how evil operates. Evil doesn't want to get you to walk away from things that you think are important. It just wants you to misunderstand and misuse them. Evil doesn't mind if you pray, if you do it poorly. Like it's got no power to it. So there's a part truth, part lie here. So some of the crowd believes the lie. Others want to test Jesus, disparaging his work. Verse 16, others testing him sought to see a sign from heaven. They got to see more. I, I don't know. The older I get, the more impressed I am with this because I think I fell into this deception as a young man. That in the kingdom of God, I'm supposed to see fireworks everywhere. I'm supposed to be dazzled right? Because all I saw on TV was people yelling and shouting and putting hands on foreheads and knocking them over and, you know, people throwing their crutches and running down the aisles and all this kind of thing, which healing does happen in the kingdom of God, but I've never seen a real healing happen with that much display. The healings I see happen overnight and then the doctor checks them and that thing is gone. And there's no fireworks. It's subdued because I think God wants us to recognize him, not the evangelist that did the fancy miracles on TV. He gets the glory, not the human. So for others to see these good works, it's not enough. Jesus is literally casting out demons, sends out 12, they do the same thing, sends out 70, they do the same thing. The kingdom of God, the church is growing under Jesus' tutelage. He just teaches them to pray. And then we see that you can go out and do all these things and you're going to still have people that believe a lie about it and people that aren't impressed by it. So it, it isn't the casting out of the demons that builds the church. It's the prayer life that builds the church. And man, you got to just rewire how you think about the kingdom when you read the book of Luke. This amazes me. There's a peace, an order, a control. There's a normalness to God and we don't credit that as a miracle. Left to our own devices, chaos. We design our own hell. We create our own stress, our own anxiety, our own worry, our own passions, our own lusts, our own greeds. But to just be peaceful, satisfied, under control, normal, living a life where you are sane, that's a miracle, you guys. We don't do that on our own. And to give God the glory, hallowed be your name, you brought into my life a sanity. And I'm not creating my own chaos anymore. I'm not creating my own disasters. You've, teach, you've taught me how to interact with people because you've put love in my heart for other people. I'm not running around stepping on people anymore or being stepped on by other people anymore. And that's a miracle, but it doesn't have fireworks that go with it. But God gets all the glory. So for some people, those that seek the Lord, when they see the healings, when they see the demons getting cast out, they don't believe lies about it, but the, and they also don't need to see any more. It's like, Lord, I'm satisfied to see your work the way you decide to show it. And I want to see more of it. Then verse 17, But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought into desolation. A house divided against itself falls. So he knows their thoughts. That can be a miracle, or he can just be reading the crowd really well. doesn't matter. Um, 
1 Corinthians 12, 8 says, For one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another a word of knowledge by the same Spirit. This could also be a demonstration of the gifts of the Spirit. Jesus has prayed, has taught them to pray, and now he has a word of knowledge about what's happening in their heads. And, and uh, this isn't unique to Jesus. There are Christians for 2,000 years that claim to, like, I was told something, and I knew it, and I felt like the Holy Spirit was telling me that this was true about this person. And so when we pray for spiritual battle, this is the manifestation of spiritual battle. Sometimes you know the thoughts of people. They don't have to tell you. So this is a tool Jesus uses, or he could just be using logic, and this isn't a sign from heaven at all. I kind of like how it's ambigu- there's an ambiguity to how this looks. Again, no fireworks, but he just knows what they think. It's not a sign from heaven necessarily. It could just be a mundane tool, not a divine tool. Still, he's modeling for the disciples that he's able to handle this situation and understand what's going on with a, with a, uh, a blessing of the Holy Spirit. And then he explains to these people that think it's Beelzebub. He's just talking to them. If Satan is divided against himself, verse 18, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Because Jewish people had exorcists too. Therefore, will they be your judges? Because they're not casting out demons, right? So how are you figuring all this out? But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. I love this. This is exactly what Jesus said back in chapter 9, or chapter 10, verse 9, verse 11. Remember he said, you go into a town, you say the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or if they reject you, you shake off the dust and say the kingdom of God has come upon you. He's modeling for them how to do this with people that have rejected him. Look, the kingdom of God is this close and you're not seeing it. If you, can't, if you can get past yourselves just a bit, this unmiraculous work, it actually is the kingdom of God. This mute person learning to speak, that it's yeoman-like, it's day-to-day, but that demon getting cast out, that's actually the power of God at work in your lives. But they want a sign from heaven. So when a strong man fully armed, Jesus explains himself, when a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are at peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and he overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor which, in which he trusted and divides his spoils. He who is not with me is against me, and who does not gather with me scatters. The strong man in this situation is Beelzebub. The one who comes upon him who is stronger is Jesus Christ. So Jesus has just made two indirect references that he's God. One, he says he's casting out demons with the finger of God that he's just the little tip of God's finger on earth incarnate making things happen. But the other here is that he is claiming that he is stronger than Satan, which doesn't fall by Jewish or Christian theology is not humanity. But it is Jesus Christ, and it is Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit in humans taking the authority of Jesus to have authority over that realm. So this uh, Satan can try to guard his claims He can even violently guard those claims, but he can't resist the name of Jesus. Jesus trumps that. So Jesus publicly claims that he's stronger than any demon, even Satan himself. And we can get into the whole house standing against itself. I I know that's something that Abe Lincoln used during the Revolutionary War. But there is an idea that the, 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 the other thing is true too. A church that fights with itself can't stand. 
A church that divides itself over and over and over again is the enemy winning the battle. And the reason the church splits over and over and over again is because humans want to see more. There needs to be a sign. There needs to be a rote prayer that we can pray. There has to be a methodology to all of this. So denominations are largely religious methodology layered on top of what Jesus taught. Because, well, there's got to be a way to do this. They just tell me the way and I'll do it. Then I'll be right with God. Yet God teaches us to pray and he gives us categories of prayer and he asks us to do it every day. So you have these divisions happening and Jesus is talking about the demonic world not being divided. Shouldn't the church be united in some way too? And I think the more and more mature I get in the faith, the less and less I care about denominational divisions. What I care about is if this person's walking with the Lord, if they're seeking Jesus with their heart, mind, soul, and strength. I really don't care about the religious traditions, which is why we don't have too many. But we're forming our own too. Like give this 30 years and we'll be like, no, no, no. There has to be green seats in a basement or this isn't what we do, right? Has to be a dove on the wall somewhere. It's not what we do. Like we do this too. But it all comes back to the heart. And Jesus teaches the opposite. Exodus 15, 2 and 3. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he is become my salvation. Great phrasing that speaks of Jesus. He is my God, and I will prepare him a habitation. My Father's God, I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war, and the Lord is his name. They didn't even know the word Jesus, but they knew exactly who they were talking about. And Jesus comes and he says, if you're, if you're not with me, you're against me. Whoever doesn't scatter, doesn't gather with me, scatters. So God does present himself as a battlefield general in a spiritual war that we fight. And so when, if he's our strength and song and he's become our salvation, literally Jesus became our salvation, we will prepare for him a habitation. The Holy Spirit will come live in us. And we prepare that place. That's our only thing to do. What prepares our existence for the habitation of the Holy Spirit? Prayer does. Prayer asks for forgiveness. Prayer aligns our will with Jesus. Prayer hollows God's name. Prayer is a prayer for action in our life, opportunities to do things. Everything's rooted in the prayer life that we have because it's cleaning out the house, making room for the Holy Spirit. So verse 23, who's not with me is against me. It helps to sort out these relationships. Either you're for Jesus or you're not. You're for what, what God's called us to do or you're not for that. This turns into a warning against the doubters. Because remember, there were some that thought he was Beelzebub. Some wanted a sign. And he's just saying, look, if you're not with what I'm doing, you're against me. And these people didn't think they were against Jesus. They were there hearing him speak. They just doubted him or they wanted more from him. But he's pushing a little warning, a not so subtle warning that those that are lying about Jesus, that that too is a spirit. They're so impressed that the mute spirit got cast out, but there's a strong implication here that there's another kind of demonic spirit that they have in doubting Jesus and lying about his ministry. That's also a demonic spirit. And there's an uncleanness to these spirits. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 34, think not that I came to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. And what's the sword throughout the scriptures? It's the word of God. And Jesus came to do battle. What's he teaching his disciples to do? He's teaching them to do battle. What's the primary tool of doing battle? I hope you're getting the theme today. Prayer. Prayer is where we do battle. And he does not gather with me scatters. Well, how do we gather with the Lord? We pray. And we spend time with him. 
and we, we, we commit ourselves to a relationship with the Father in heaven that we have, um, or we're scattering. We're all over the place. Our heads are all over the place. Our brains are all over the place. Our work is all over the place. If we, we don't dread or fear, he who gathers with Jesus with me scatters. We don't dread or fear weaker kingdoms. I think that's why Jesus is unimpressed with casting out demons. It should not for us to be amazed when demons get cast out. They're weaker than we are. The spirit that God put in you is the same spirit he put in Paul and in Peter and in Ruth and in Moses. Same spirit that's in you right now. And you are a, a warrior in a kingdom that has more authority and more strength than any demonic powers that exist out there. But that doesn't mean demons can't attack you. You're fair game if you're not in your prayer life, if you're not connected with the Lord. There is a battle going on that's claiming souls, and souls are the spoils of war. And there are guardians where the enemy thinks he has a soul, and he's going to protect that soul. There's a one kingdom against a vastly inferior kingdom, but there's still a fight to be had. He's training 12, he's tra training 70, and he's teaching them to fight the battle. Basically, Jesus is saying claiming one life away from Satan is a victory in that warfare that's happening spiritually. But then you look at how this looks. This is good news for those that love God because we win and we always win. It's really bad news for those that don't or for those that have a crippled prayer life, right? Same God as Deuteronomy, the internal God is my refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms and he shall thrust out the enemy from before me and, and, and shall say, destroy them. Same God. We fight a spiritual battle in our own hearts, in our own lives. The, the God's prayer helps us to fight that. But your soul is being fought over today, tomorrow, and this week. You will have spirits of the Holy Spirit if you've cleaned out your house and made room for the Holy Spirit. And you will act in the Holy Spirit with things that are not of your flesh. A love for others, peace, patience, care, a settledness in your heart. But there will be other spirits that seek to attack you, some overt and demonic-y feeling, but some that are just unclean, they put lies in your head. A lying spirit is a demonic spirit, according to the Bible. Some that are unclean because they put, they put temptations there. Well, we should be praying against those temptations because there's a battle going on. And Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray accordingly. Which of the, which of the two are going to win with you? That's the thing. Satan wins a great victory when he convinces believers that there's no battle to be fought. Isn't that a great way to get soldiers off the field is that they missed their call to duty just because we can't see this battle doesn't mean that it's not there and the next part is tragic that brings a whole new light on this next story for believers if we want to help people out man you find people that are messed up and you convince them just come hear God's words on a Sunday and they come hear God's words on a Sunday and they repent Oh my goodness, this is the truth of life that I just heard. I repent, I turn my life, and then they come for a few weeks, and then they got something that comes up and they can't make it. And then two things come up and they have to miss again. And then they're sporadically coming every once in a while. And then they disappear and you don't know where they're at. You ever seen that? It's tragic. It breaks our hearts because as believers, we're like, man, we can see the change that's going on. But you can clean out that heart and make room for it, but if they don't decide to take on their own spiritual life, it, they're just going to get attacked again. It's all coming back. So listen to this story and let it sink in theologically. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, doesn't say necessarily demonic, just says unclean, that can be presumed to be of the enemy. He goes through dry places seeking rest and finding none. And he says, I will return to my house from which I came. 
And when he comes, he finds it swept out and put in order because the Holy Spirit's doing a work there. It's starting to clean the house out. And then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Man, that's, that's a tragic story that Jesus is teaching. But we can start to see the importance of prayer. Today, you can be clean and forgiven. You can walk out of this room today, and Jesus can wash away every sin that you've ever committed. Gone. Wiped out of your life. Your house is cleaned. And boy, I pray you do that. That while we're here and we're studying the word, you're like, Lord, forgive me. Wash me clean. Take it all away. Make me new. And God will answer that prayer because you asked it. He will take it and he will absolutely scatter the evil before you and it'll disappear. But that unclean spirit didn't die when that happened. It went somewhere. This is, this is the warfare. And it's going in dry places and it's thirsty. It wants to own a human. And then it thinks, I can't find anything out here. There's nowhere else for me to go. I'm going to go right back to that place because now they've gotten over their Jesus fad. I can come back. And notice that the demon says, my house. See the ownership there and how evil that is? They don't even respect humans as owning their own place. If we don't fill our house with prayer, God's word, and the Holy Spirit, something will fill that house. It's that simple. So as God's teaching them how to pray and how to do this and this story of persistence that comes right after it and then this story comes after it and then this teaching comes with it, if we don't gather with Jesus, verse 23, in prayer, we've just made a more orderly house. They came and threw a, a beer bash party in our house and then we came home and we're like, dang, all these teenagers and we clean up the entire mess and then we leave for the weekend, guess what the teenagers are going to do? There is a vastly inferior enemy that wants to have a beer bash in your soul and mess everything up and break everything, and they think it's fun to do that. They delight in human beings living hell before they even get sent there. And they, want, they don't just come to mess things up, they come to destroy. So there's no room to be lukewarm. There's no neutral. That's an unclean spirit that says, I can just be low-key about my faith. If you're not serious about your faith, if you're not de dedicated to your faith, the demonic world will attack you and fill your house and it'll be even worse than when you started. So people should consider that before they give their lives to Jesus. They should weigh that cost a little bit. You can clean up your life and still cling to bitterness. That's an unclean spirit. You can cling to anger. Even worse, those sins you committed, you can cling to your own shame. There's lots of things you can cling to after you clean out the house. And when you do that, you're not getting your identity in Christ because Christ, Christ says those sins were thrown as far as the east is from the west. They're gone. There might be earthly consequences for those sins that you still have to go through. You might have some prison time ahead of you. But you need to re realign your identity in Christ through the word of God and through prayer. So those people go through a pattern where they've, they've, they've got, they feel great for a moment, but they can't let go of those sins that put them in the mess in the first place. Bitterness, anger, shame, selfishness. They just can't let them go. And that sin comes and destroys them again. Works don't change us. Making an orderly house, that's all good. Cleaning up your life for a couple weeks, that's not a bad thing to do, but reflect on where it's going. 
It's the long journey that we're on. I don't care if you're saved today. I want to, I want you saved the day you die. So we finish strong. We don't just start strong and we finish with everything we need. So the heart will absorb spirits being pride, worldly greed, or even demonic desires for evil. People that actually like evil. They're all unclean spirits, but our heart will soak one of them in because we house spirits. Either those spirits, our own spirit, or the Holy Spirit. Something's going to live in our heart. And that kind of clarity that Jesus brings, this is an interesting chapter theologically. We fill up with Jesus, 2 Corinthians 10, 15, 10, 5. We bring every thought into captivity and obedience to Jesus Christ. And he just taught us how to do that through prayer. We pray that we're delivered from evil. Jesus is our salvation, love, joy, hope, peace. Deliver me from evil, Lord. Take care of that for me. Because And then we get the story about these, this demonic existence, this battle that's going on. Well, I can't see that. I don't know where it's at, and I don't recognize it. Lord, help me to help take care of that for me. I don't want to be worse than when I first started. And here's where you're worse than the first. Say you go back to that life of sin, only now you got shame because you just rejected what you know is a clean house. There's a blasphemy of the Holy Spirit where you don't make room for it. And that's something that, that will get you landed in hell. And, and I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't teach what Jesus is teaching here. Jesus says, don't just clean out the house, let him fill it and, and put something there. For example, verse 27, and it happened as he spoke these things that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts with nurture you. First of all, if a woman cries out from the crowd and starts talking about breasts, something's weird about that. Wouldn't you agree? By any culture, any standard. But he said, more than that, blessed are those that hear the word of God and keep it. Don't just hear it, keep it. Keep it as the word keep there is as in hospitality. Make room for it in your heart. Host it. So Luke adds this short narrative at the end of this passage. Again, when you put the whole chapter together, it, at first glance, you're like, well, they're just honoring Mary. They're just saying, hey, wait, kicking butt, Jesus, way to go. Your mom was awesome. But think about this at a level because he just got done dealing with the mute spirit and then he starts teaching about an unclean spirit and now he's getting, and I would suggest he's encountering an unclean spirit that doesn't look as dramatic as the mute person speaking, right? This, she's just shouting it out, but look at the pattern of it. It says, as it happened, verse 27. So as it happened, this is completely not hearing what Jesus just taught. It's absolutely ignoring what the topic of the conversation is. Ever had Q&A times where we're talking about the word and somebody brings something up and it just has nothing to do with the chapter? It's distracting. And as he spoke, is that, so it's as it happened and then it says, as he spoke these things, as he spoke, she shouts this out. What do we call that? I call that interrupting. It's rude. It's impolite. She's not hearing Jesus at all and she's rude about it. Sound familiar? Uh, an interesting passage, if you want to go back and look look at chapter 8 while we're going through this, the demon that's in the, the graveyard at Gadarenes follows this pattern. Loud, interrupts, as it happened, and then it says, a certain woman. They don't even know the name of this woman, in part because she's not part of the community. She's not one of the 70. She's not one of the 12. So she hasn't invested in or knows people. No one that Luke interviewed knew who she was. She's just some soul that shows up at one of his teachings. Comes out of nowhere. And then it says, she raised her voice. She's loud. 
You can't ignore her. So off topic, interrupting, not listening to what Jesus is teaching, not part of the community, and she raises her voice. And then what does she say? Here's another attribute of unclean spirits. Blessed is the womb. That's first of all weirdness. And I'm starting to just call this weirdness. There are people that show up and they're just weird. Where did you get that from? What, what ideas are in your head? And the reality is, I think the reason Luke puts this in here is it's a very low-key, unclean spirit that we as Christians need to recognize. And so this one's harder to recognize than the mute spirit, but Jesus deals with the spirit all the same. Blessed is the womb takes the praise off of Jesus and puts the praise on a womb. Think about that. We're going to start praising wombs now? Is that what we do as a church? Like, this is nuts. So the spirit, the unclean spirit of the Gadarene said, son of the most high God. And Jesus always calls himself the son of man. So twisting the teaching, changing what Jesus has taught, not aligning himself to God's will, yet shouting and yelling and interrupting. So Jesus talks about unclean spirits and now he's got one. So now he deals with this much more common, more deceptive, distracting, loud, off topic, and frankly weird. He doesn't argue with the woman's theology who shouts this out. Like, look, we're not here to, to worship wombs and breasts. That's not what we do. Or stop talking about my mom. Like, you did, like think about it. Like, why are you talking about my mom? Like, she's not here right now. Maybe she is. But like, I, we don't need to praise Mary. But he does redirect her. There's a grace to how Jesus handles it. He casts her out and deals with her all the same. But it doesn't look like an exorcism. Right? It's so much easier than that. He just says more than that. You know what's more important than your weirdness? It's more important than the weirdness is blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. She wasn't listening to Jesus. She wasn't hearing the word of God. So he's saying more than that, you know what's really cool? People who listen to what I say and do what I say. Not your weird praise Mary stuff. You got to let that go. So the way Jesus deals with or casts out this spirit is absolutely graceful and merciful. And for people that, like, aren't seeing the spiritual warfare, they would just think he dealt with a weird lady. But for people that do see the spiritual warfare, Lord, keep me from temptation, keep me from evil, they're going to hear these kinds of things and go, I see what Jesus just did there. He just dealt with a spirit that was unclean, trying to get us to worship a womb. Then Jesus claims to be teaching the word and giving wisdom that's worthy of blessing. We should note the sequence. Then he says, so I say to you, <laughs> blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So I say to you, ask and it will be given. Seek and you will be fine. Knock and it will be opened. Whose word is Jesus claiming to be speaking right now? His own. This is another indirect reference to the fact that he's the word of God. And he throws that in there. Jesus claims, to, claims in verse 9 to speak on his own authority. Verse 14 uses the word and, no separation, same teaching. Verse 20, with the finger of God, the kingdom has come upon you. Verse 27, and it happened and he spoke. No separation, same teaching, same lesson as we sequence through this. Same authority, Jesus giving wisdom. Verse 28, blessed are those who hear the word of God. So everything he's just taught, he's done in his own voice, and he said, I say to you, and now he's saying those who hear the word of God. A very artful, non-direct way of saying, I'm God. But you'd have to like piece all that together to be like, wait, you're saying you're God here. And he's throwing this out, I think throwing his own authority back at this lady. 
He doesn't get into womb worship at all. He just says, hear it and do it. Then verse 29 starts with the word and. And while the crowds were thickly gathered together, he began to say, this is an evil generation. It seeks a sign. So now he's dealing with the sign seekers. There was the Beelzebub people, now the sign seekers. It seeks a sign and no sign is going to be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up in judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed of greater than Solomon is here. And the men, the men of the Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation, and they'll condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. So seeking the sign. Still the conversation. Frankly, this book ends it. And you take that last verse and it definitely reinforces Jesus speaking in his own authority. And he points to the prayer and word, to hear and to do. He also shifts to unclean spirits and now misdirected praise. And then he calls them an evil generation. Like this is not seeker friendly. Jesus gave them many signs. Let's say this too. He's done thousands of signs. They just don't recognize any of them. I could sit all day and tell you what the Lord has done in my life and just go year by year and say, and then the Lord did this and when I was 26 and he did this when I was, and, and, and you may get done with that and, and it would have no effect whatsoever on your heart. Unless you're another believer and then you're like, praise the Lord, man, that's great. Look at how the Lord's worked in your life. But a non-believer will be like, coincidence, you're seeing things, you're making that up. They just, I want to see a sign right now. I want to see lightning bolts from heaven right now. If there's really a God, let there be lightning bolts. And I'd say, be careful what you ask for. But the sign of Jonah. Jonah, what is the sign of Jonah? Well, first of all, there's a whole book on Jonah. Most believe this is Jesus went in the grave for three days, like Jonah went in the whale for three days. He comes up, he rose out of the dead. It says Jonah became uh, the sign. And the sign, like, if you're in a whale for three days, your skin gets kind of pasty white. You get some seaweed hanging out of your teeth. You become a sign from God of what happened. Ultimately, Jonah gets spit out on a beach. There's probably some Ninevites that watch that happen. They worship a fish god. So the fish god just sends Jonah with a message. Um, and his message was repent. Like, And then they did. Like, There's not, not much to his sermon and his preaching. Um, the son of man thing, Jesus emphasizes that he carries the essence of all mankind. He's fully human. And if we believe in Jesus, he's going to become the sign of that. He'll die on a cross, fully human, but then he'll rise again. The queen of the south is this queen of Sheba, 1 Kings chapter 10. She travels miles and miles, hundreds of miles to go seek Solomon's wisdom. She brings him gifts. She honors him. She hallows his name. She celebrates that his servants serve willingly. She recognizes the kingdom that he's built. And she accepts that Solomon is God's messenger on earth. Nineveh accepts that Jonah was God's messenger on earth. It's what they share in common. But here's, here's the field goal. Jesus just made two more claims. In front of this crowd of critics, he says, greater than Solomon is here. That's, that's the wisest person on earth by God's own words. First Kings 3.12, behold, I've done according to your words. See, I've given you a wise and understanding heart so that there has not been anyone like you before, nor shall like any like you arise after you. 
So either Jesus just made God himself a liar because he's greater than, he's claiming to be greater than Solomon, or he's also fully God and that he's simply not just human like Solomon was. So for both of those things to be true, for Jesus to say a greater than Solomon is here, you can bet the Pharisees and the Sodom, they went nuts when they heard this because he just denied something that was said in the Old Testament. Unless, of course, he's God. Then, he's, then it's not denying. And then he also said, greater is Jonah in here. Why is Jonah significant? I mean, literally, he had a bad spirit about it. He didn't even want to see Nineveh get converted. But here's what's special about Jonah. Arguably, Jonah is the most successful prophet in the Old Testament. He's the only prophet in the Old Testament where an entire nation was converted to honor and hallow the name of Yahweh. Every other prophet had very small results. Only a remnant would follow them. Uh, and a lot of those prophets got killed. Like they, were, they, they really didn't success. They were there to give a warning. So all he said is, <laughs> um, th- by the way, the, the quote in Jonah 3.4, the only words he said to Nineveh is, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. He literally told them judgment is coming and they all converted. And obviously there might be more to Jonah's teaching that isn't recorded, but that was his message and he had the most successful um, evangelism of the Old Testament. So Jesus is claiming he's wiser than Solomon, but he's also greater than Jonah in that he's more eminent as a prophet than Jonah was. And lo, the church as the kingdom of God is a greater number of converts than were lived in Nineveh. So today we know we have this sign and we'll wrap up here tonight. This is all we're going to get to. Um, We know we have this sign. We know we have his preaching, Jesus' preaching, and that's the battlefield. We have the word of God through Jesus Christ, and we have the full revelation of that. We can have everything we need to understand the depth of sin and the power of salvation. We can be washed in his wisdom and in his repentance. That's the message of Jesus. So doing life with Jesus then becomes the spiritual battle. And here with the crowd, with the lawyers, with the Pharisees attacking him, um, he is announcing a spiritual battle that's going on amongst the unclean spirits that are all around him. And he's saying this is what it is. And he's not doing that for the crowd. I think he's doing it for the disciples because he's still teaching them this is what it looks like. You're going to jump into the fray and you are going to outnumber the multitudes that surround you because you and God equals the victory. Summary here is to keep this in mind, how the section started. The section started with prayer. Because we pray for all this stuff, we want to see more engagement in the fray. Some of you might not. I want to see the battle. I don't want to just be somebody that sits on the bench. I want to get in the game. So I want to pray more, and I want to pray more persistently because I want to be in these kinds of battles that get demonstrated through the rest of the chapter. When you do... We don't look for signs. We don't look for Jesus to amaze us. But we do talk to Jesus and we do bow to Jesus. That's what we do. And we don't make false accusations that this is not good or bad or whatever. If it's Jesus, it's not Beelzebub. And Jesus doesn't fight against himself. So we ask, we seek, we knock, we hear the word, we keep the word. It's a really simple chapter. But the, the consequences of this for those following Jesus is huge. First John 4, 4, you are of God, little children. You've overcome them. Because he who is in you is greater than who is in the world. And I just, I love that verse. I don't have to be scared of spiritual battle. I don't have to hedge away from it. I don't have to wilt when, I, when it's coming. I can jump into it knowing that the God who's in me is greater than any battle this world has to fight. And I can be resolved in that. So next, keep in mind this empty house, verses 24 through 28. Circle that in your Bible. Because that's going to get 
the rest of the chapter is going to kind of deal with that empty house. Jesus will continue to talk about how to fill that space so that seven demons don't come back to fill it. Uh, and then it's open season on the lawyers and the Pharisees in the next chapter. He's going to unload on them. So he's the gauntlet's been thrown and he's going to get out his spiritual M16 and he is going to spray the crowd. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. He's going to call out the unclean spirits and he's going to bring them from the dark out into the light. This is how you fight some of these battles. If you want to get in people's faces, Jesus will model that for you in the next chapter. Uh, so chapter 12, more teaching, and Jesus keeps, keeps rolling to Jerusalem. All of this is going to end him on a cross. And Luke, I think, I think the reason Luke wrote both Luke and Acts is because the cross isn't the end of the ministry. Like this is going to go to a cross, but that's just the beginning of the church and what's going to unlock after that. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, may we listen to what you're saying and how you're saying it. Lord, I, I got my own takes on it, but Lord, I, I just pray my own takes get out of the way. And that each person in this room is reading the scripture for themselves. They're seeing what they see there and they're not just hearing it, but they're going to keep it and do it. And Lord, if we, we all do that independently, then you, you can create an army and you can guide us because you're the general. And Lord, we want to give all glory to you. We want to hallow your name and keep it precious in our lives. Lord, we want you to provide all the things we need. Our daily bread being it physical and spiritual. Lord, help no one in here be distracted from the kingdom because they're worried about those needs. Lord, we pray that you protect us, deliver us from evil. Lord, and, and, and keep us from temptation. Lord, don't put us in tests that are beyond us. Keep us right where you want us. Lord, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Lord, may we be your agents. May you use us as you see us. Here we are, send us, use us. And Lord, prepare us for those things. Because Lord, ultimately we want you to get all glory, all honor, all dominion. Amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.